Last week we had an introduction to the Gospel of John, and, and um, the, you can see all that or read up on all the text and everything is online um, for you there. But we're in verse number 6 of John chapter 1 today. So I'm going to just read a little bit. And John the Apostle, I'm going to refer to two people today, and it might get kind of confusing because they're both named John. One is John the Apostle, the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Revelation, the author, and then John the Baptist, uh, JTA and JTB. So JTB was the pre-runner to Christ, John the Baptist, of course, the young, youngest among the disciples, and uh, we'll refer to him as John the Apostle. But anyway, uh, he is writing here, John the Apostle, in John chapter 1 and verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light. Now John the Apostle is introducing John the Baptist, okay? He's not Baptist, but denomination or affiliation, you know, he's just called John the Baptizer, or because he baptized people, that's where he gets that name. Um, he came as a witness to bear, a, to witness about the light, not that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. So John the Apostle introduces this man sent from God, and when John the Baptist he introduces him. He wasn't just speaking empty words. God has a real purpose for John the Baptist and all that he does. And John the Apostle includes uh, John the Baptist's history here because of the message that John the Baptist brought. And we're going to take a look at the message of John the Baptist because it still has relevance for us today. Um, John the Baptist brought to bear some, some tremendous things through his life. But anyway, he paved the way for Jesus just as what he preached about helps us in our witness as we talk to people about the Lord as well. Because the church in a church service isn't uh, only a good place for someone maybe to become introduced to Jesus. 70% of people that come to church do so because of a personal connection you had with them. Only up to 7% perhaps of the pastor, in my case much less, <laughs> and, and uh, 2% because of the church sign. So you're not talking about a very big amount of people. Usually people come because of um, you know, they are personally invited. Today's web and stuff that we have, a lot of tools out there change things a bit. But nonetheless, our personal connection with people is what brings about the witness of Jesus. So John the Baptist's history is really intriguing because his birth was a miracle, if you recall, and his mother Elizabeth became pregnant in her whole old age, and Zechariah goes up to the temple to this prayer meeting. He's a priest going about his priestly duties, and while he's in the inner sanct, while he's doing his duties in there, the Lord uh, speaks to him and says, you're going to have a son, and you're to call his name John. Well, he comes away from that, uh, conversation in those moments kind of feeling of this is not possible I'm an old guy and my wife is up there in here sounds like sort of like you know Abraham and his situation so anyway this similar situation so he says you know I don't know about this so what happens is the Lord permits him to become mute and he's unable to speak the entire time of uh, Elizabeth's pregnancy but he paves the way uh, for Jesus scripture says that um, that Zechariah and Elizabeth both observed, John the Baptist's parents, observed the laws of the Lord blamelessly. That's quite a statement. And there's a, this giant prayer meeting, and so he sees his wife, north of 60 years old, says, this is not possible, but nonetheless, she conceives. Um, God's promises to Zechariah 
about John the Baptist were powerful. He gives him four big bullet points about this son that his wife and her older years, uh, more mature years, should I say that, don't use a, when I first came to the church at Abundant Life, you know, I was only 26 years old, and um, that was 25 years ago, and I said, you know, somebody that's a little older, like 60, and you could hear the gasps in the place, like, ah, I'm not old. Anyway, if you're north of 60, I don't mean to imply you're old, but if you are and you take it that way and you're offended, um, you can start your own church. Okay, anyway. <laughs> God's promised, God's, I'm getting there, so I turned 52 yesterday, it's creeping up, right? God's promise to Zechariah, number one, he'll be a joy to you and many will rejoice at his birth. That's a powerful promise. Secondly, he'll be great in the eyes of the Lord and go in the spirit of Elijah. And we hear more about his work in the spirit of Elijah and what that means a little later. He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit from birth and he will bring many to the Lord. So John the Baptist has got a lot of really mandates to his calling. He's got a lot of things that are going to happen through him. So his purpose was great. You know, if we turn to Mark, um, let's just take a quick look at that. If you have your Bible, I, this is not on PowerPoint. So Mark chapter 1, and it gives us a little more insight into John the Baptist, um, and it reiterates some of the uh, prophetic things that are said about the man John the Baptist. It says, um, in the, be uh, the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written, Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. So very descriptive of who he was. In verse 4 it says, And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people in Jerusalem uh, went over to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. Very descriptive, right? Very vivid imagery that John the Apostle has of what John the Baptist looks like. And wore clothes made of camel's hair, leather belt around his waist, and he ate locust and wild honey. I wonder if he got the honey just to make the locust more tolerable, right? I mean, I suppose if you dip the locust in honey, it might taste a little better going down. Otherwise, anyway, nonetheless. And this was his message. After me comes one more powerful than I, whose straps are the sandals. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I will baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So, and you can read the rest of the chapter there, um, and the, or the next few verses anyway, it gives more description about who he was. But that kind of paints us a pretty cool picture of who he was. So he's to prepare the way for the Messiah. And what does that mean? So how does John the Baptist going to prepare the way for Jesus to come on the scene? I mean, if you think about it, John is preaching a message of righteousness, and he told the people to repent. His message was repentance. That was the key part of his message. The Bible also tells us Noah had a similar message in his day. Something, a message that was a precursor to something very profound where the whole earth was going to be destroyed. Well, just the opposite this time. This time, this profound message and this powerful message is the same, repentance, but it's leading up to Jesus. So he didn't tell them to offer more sacrifices. He, his message wasn't uh, them to pay more or give more in the offering. He simply preached with compassion, the Bible says, and confronted the lies that people were living in, and then he told them to repent of those things. Listen to how Isaiah prophesies about the way he is, his personality, and the way he delivers his message. It says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem, 
and proclaim to her her heart's service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, and that she has received from the Lord double uh, for her sins. In verse 3, a voice of the one call, calling in the desert, prepare a way for the Lord, make straight the wilder, in the wilderness a highway for our God. So John's message of repentance is very important. How is the message of repentance leading the way to Jesus? Because genuine repentance means to retreat from one direction and go to another. In the Old Testament, it's used a few ways. We find in 1 Kings 8, 47, a word is called bethink. And the word bethink means to return to a starting point or to rethink your situation. Uh, we find Jesus using the word repent when preaching, when he says, repent and believe the good news. So repentance here, it literally means to think differently. Repentance is to change your mind about the way you think. And there's a lot of thinking that the world has on display for us today, right? And there's endless YouTube channels. There's, there's ways to get connected to all kinds of ways of thought in our world. But repentance means literally to change the way you're thinking about something, to turn about face in your thought patterns and, and to, to go a different direction, to turn away from. Um, some things about repentance that are really important that we find principally in Scripture. I got two of them here. Number one, your repentance requires change when we repent we know that salvation is believing in jesus right you know that that is true scripture says that we're saved by believing in jesus that's the essence of the gospel and it sounds simple enough yet believing in something true that you've never realized before requires you to give up the way and the things you were thinking before we can't think one way all of a sudden and, and continue thinking the other way. <coughs> thinking and believing in Jesus is counterthinking the ways of the world and the ways of sin. I remember thinking is powerful. I mean, if we believe a lie long enough, you know, it takes some separation to do so. That's why more people come to Christ earlier in life than later because the older we get, the more stinking thinking we have going on. And it's easy to believe something. As a kid, my dad told me a story. It was just a silly story. He was playing with me, but I didn't know. In fact, I didn't, <coughs> I didn't know it was true because I trust my dad to be so infallible I went to school and told everybody this great truth, and this is the story. He said there was a guy, I, we were talking about it being so cold and, and, and you know, outside because we lived in Michigan, and he said, well, there was a farmer, and he had this farm, and, and he had these cows in the field, and it got so hot one summer that the, the corn started popping. And <laughs> because the corn... <laughs> The corn was popping everywhere that the cows thought it was snowing and they laid down and froze to death. Now you imagine a third grader going to his class and for a show and tell or story time, he tells this story. I, it did not work well for me. And I went home and told dad that my teacher said that's not true. You know, and this was back in the day when the metric system was sin and we were going to hell if we believed in it. And, but anyway, it, it was like, uh, it was like, he said, no, I, I was, I was, you know, I was playing with you. It was a story. I was just, I was just funning with you. I said, okay, like the time you told me to eat a spoonful of mustard. That was really great, dad. I appreciate it. I love my dad. Anyway. But thinking about something that we believe is true as a child, and the childlike example, can grow into adulthood. There are lots of strange things we think. 
But repentance is an about face. God, I repent of my addiction. I'm going to think about you. God, I repent of my lustful thoughts or my, I repent of my drunkenness. I am going to turn to you. Salvation isn't just for that one moment, friend. We say, Jesus, I believe in you. Salvation is for those moments. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to remember them forever and hold them against us. That's not right, is it? To forgive us our sins. The second thing, the power of repentance is freedom. The power of repentance is freedom. Thinking is really important. We change our thinking. Um, um, and, and changing thinking is really important, but repentance brings freedom. It's impossible to play a game if we don't know what the rules are. And living in, in my sin or with my sin, uh, make, make my, make it, let it be home in my conscience is like playing a game with the hope of winning or enjoying the sport of it. I would enjoy playing the game. Imagine this room right here. We're a basketball court. And uh, Belle and I are playing basketball. Now, Belle is shorter. But anyway, <laughs> we're playing basketball. Imagine that this, there were no boundaries. There were no rules. There were, in fact, several basketball hoops. And if Belle was trying to shoot a shot and I would just hold my hand up to block it, um, <laughs> down here maybe, I don't know. Um, if there were no rules, she could just turn and go shoot at this one. Imagine if there's no referees and she gets really angry and socks me in the gut and goes, I mean, no, no one to call a foul. Imagine there's no rules in this game to where I can punch somebody or push somebody out of the way, throw an elbow. Nobody's ever done that playing basketball. I've never done it. Right, right. Now, you know your pastor was not telling the truth right there, right? I, I've thrown elbows, so... Imagine this court, though, with no boundaries, no referees, no one to call fouls. If, if you don't like doing it one way, your, your opponent never fouls out. They can batter you and push you around as much as they want. Imagine a ruleless, a lawless game where you can do whatever. I mean, that's, that's, that's a game with no score. There's no points. There's no point in playing. I mean, it's not even fun. It's like don't even show up because there are no boundaries. I mean, when we're young people, we do this, right? We, there's no boundaries. In fact, at one point, I moved out of the house, and I thought, I'm going to live on my own. So I was so, you know, I got this house, and I, I realized after a while how expensive food was. So I would go home every night and eat mom's cooking because I realized that the rules were good. They weren't bad for me. They were good. I think a lot of young people play this kind of game and they're on our streets today and, and some never escape the street. They're, they're hopeless maybe or addicted, hateful and wounded. And Now if we put in boundaries into the game, because a ruleless life is actually bondage, it's hopeless. Repentance is the avenue that leads to faith. Repentance is actually the thing that brings the freedom. 
Because turning away from the lawlessness to the, to the judge and the lawgiver gives us a freedom that we've never experienced. It gives us a new hope. It gives us a new joy. We realize that we have purpose now. We have design about us. We're not just aimlessly wandering around, going at our every whim. We have structure in the Lord, and the Lord gives us his grace. He nurtures our gifts and gives us joys and pleasures beyond measure. I, I wish I could get in the side of the mind of, of somebody who, who is far from God and, and just ask him, why are you doing this why, why how do you live without the lord how do you live without the knowledge of knowing you're going to heaven or or have a, a hope beyond this world i i wish i knew the why they think the way that they do i i can't comprehend it it's puzzling i'm, I'm gonna interview a bunch of people and write a book and just to tell their stories because i want to know what makes them tick Turning to the Lord, you know, the Bible says, Paul writes in Galatians 5.1, it is for freedom's sake that Christ has made us free. When coming to the Lord and we give him all of our burdens and all of our lawlessness and he comes in and he says, here's my peace. My law is joy. My burden is light. My yoke is easy. It's way different from what you've been doing. <coughs> the power of this, friends, and, and I don't, I don't, mean a one and only experience rather the ongoing work in the life of every believer follow me here with this thinking you will and i will sin you will experience guilt you will experience pressures from from that sin but i want to share with you friends this is not only wrong but by doing this you and i are ignoring the untapped power of salvation we all do things every once in a while. I mean, we do dumb things, right? I mean, some of us have even driven a Chevy once. I mean, <laughs> salvation is, is for... <laughs> is for a one, it's not for a one-time get-out-of-hell-free card. Repentance is freedom. Repentance is freedom. Aren't you glad for that? Another thing that John the Baptist was to do was to prepare the hearts for the new covenant. Malachi 3.1 prophesies about him. It says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to this temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. Consider what is about to happen. The new covenant was going to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. History teaches us that the animal sacrifice that had been done in 1,500 or more years of tradition after Christ rose from the grave almost immediately stopped. That's power. Another thing that John the Baptist was to do was to turn the hearts of fathers to children and the disobedient and the wisdom to the righteous and the hearts of children to their fathers. John gives us some things. John the Apostle, as he writes, he goes on and he gives us seven enlightenments. Now, don't get upset if I use that word in church. I'm not referring to the things that go on uh, through the term enlightenment in this world. The actual scripture uses the word enlightenment. And more specifically, for us to realize the full truth that was once hidden. That's what enlightenment means. I had a lot of hidden truths revealed to me when I was a boy, and a good way that I was reminded was through spanking. That those disciplines helped me to understand the enlightenment. And I was enlightened. I was awakened to the truth, right? When you hear the word enlightenment, you might think, you know, mm, Buddhism, Hinduism, uh, yoga, also transcendental meditation, or all these things are 
kind of religious systems hooked together. If you do yoga, I just I want to let you know it's just true. You can look at the source uh, of where the information comes from. Or you might think back to the term enlightenment, to the, the mid, late 17th, early 18th century, where the age of reason and science came in. Remember the... the um, theory of evolution gained some a little bit of traction. It was really only uh, a little traction among some academia in the world at the time and uh, because it was so, so thought such foolishness. But the ideas of humanism pertaining to this have been around forever. I mean, they've been around since the garden, right? Um, it's, not, it's not a new idea. But the ideas of humanism right here in the term of enlightenment is not what we're talking about. John the Apostle confronts and does so of these ideas on several different fronts. And one to break religious tyranny that had been there with his statements of enlightenment that he makes here in these few verses. And, and the other is to use as John the Baptist to introduce, introduce true enlightenment. So John the Apostle gives you explanation of John the Baptist's purpose and all this. And John the Baptist was not the light as John the Apostle puts it, but to bear witness to the light. Now the light is important because light enlightens. And he uses this theme also in 1 John beautifully. If memorizing the first chapter of 1 John is, is a powerful thing for a Christian to have in their memorization arsenal, right? And, and, but we go to verse 9, and let's read in the text. I'm going to read all the way down to verse 18, John chapter 1. The true light which enlightens, there's that word, everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who are born not of blood, nor the will of flesh, or the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the Son from the Father, full of grace and truth, John the, John the, the Baptist, uh, he's talking about here, bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. Verse 16, And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. I love that. We're going to get to that later. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Now, here true enlightenment doesn't come when you go off to college and you study and you come home knowing more than mom or dad, right? I mean, that's what I did anyway, but it's not true. It doesn't come through higher ed or progressive ideology in our world today, that's for sure. It comes by knowing Christ. True enlightenment, as the Bible says, comes from knowing Christ. Enlightenments, uh, these doctrines, if you will, that John states is powerful. He, he offers true enlightenments that confront all others. And let me just talk about them. Number one, he says, Jesus is creator. The world was made through him. I find it interesting that Jesus is a carpenter and he was creator of the world crafting it by the Father's design and, the, and by the work of the Holy Spirit being present as well, the Bible says, at creation. So first of all, enlightenment comes to mankind because Jesus is creator. This, this, um, this is enlightening because even from near the very beginning of time, Satan introduces the idea to Eve, remember, that, that all she has to do to be God is she needs more information. Satan says, Eve, God's keeping something from you. You're going to be like God. And her university, 
you know, uh, college or Google information was all found in this fruit. It would be downloaded, her equivalence to be God, her knowledge. Enlightenment number two that he brings out here is Jesus is the only Savior. There are not multiple paths to God. Now, before the information wasn't complete and the consequences were death, but God has compassion on man in spite of our best humanistic efforts and our, com our ability to find freedom and purpose on our own. Sin destroys us and we're naked and we, and we need a protector. That's the position that Adam and Eve found themselves in. But what does God do? He comes in likeness of human flesh and takes upon himself our sin. Jesus is the only Savior. They're not multiple gods. They're not multiple paths to God. He is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. <coughs> True enlightenment comes through Jesus also in that he is the light. John the Apostle says here that the light came even though the world did not see the light. He came to his own. His own people didn't see that Jesus was the Messiah. So everyone, no matter where they're from, can be enlightened through Christ. He is the only Savior. The enlightenment number three that John says here is Jesus is God and has always existed. He wasn't created, as the Mormons say, that he's Satan's brother. Jesus is the only God. To remove Jesus' divinity is to say he's not God. That's a different Jesus. Don't get me started. Enlightenment number five, the four. God is born in the flesh to clearly communicate with us. Jesus comes in John 1 and he says, I have come, why? To, that they might have life and have it abundantly, John 10, 10. Enlightenment number five, his birth was not by a man's will. The incarnation and the immaculate conception and the, the, the wonderfulness about the virgin birth is all because it wasn't by a man's will. Enlightenment number six, grace. John 1.16, he says, and from his fullness we've all received grace upon grace. Grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus. What a powerful statement. So God's grace isn't something to be earned or purchased, is it? God's grace isn't something to be good enough for or to, or to buy it's not something that we can grasp on our own. Scripture says that even our own best is not good enough. In other words, we are never on our own sufficient. It's a profound thought. Have you ever considered, really considered, that nothing that you do, your very best deeds, all of your goodness is not good enough to get you into heaven? That's what John is saying here. He's saying that grace is enough. Grace is the only thing. This is why grace is such good news, because, it, because this is something that God does. It's not something that we do. Jesus took our sin on himself so that by his sacrifice, the shedding of his blood, what do we do? We have our sins covered. Grace is grace alone, and grace is enough. Romans eleven six 6 says, But if it is by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace, he writes. Grace is enough. Grace is grace, and grace upon grace is what God has given. Jesus says that you need to count the cost before you follow him. If it's grace, why would Jesus say such a thing? Friends, because it's a matter of trading our old rotten life 
John's message of repentance and turning our thinking around to our healed life, the life that God has given to us. The reason that believers have so much more joy and hope and peace in this world is because we're following the only Savior. The world can manufacture saviors. There's pills that are saviors. There's personalities that are saviors. There's rock and pop stars that are saviors. There's athletes that are saviors. There's ways of thinking that are saviors. There's everything from kitty cats to, to, to millions of dollars that are saviors. But there's only one savior. We can't experience real life while the old man has not been crucified. Repentance means turning to Jesus. He changes my thinking. He heals the way I think so that I have more joy, purpose, and peace. John the Apostle continues to describe us uh, to us, John the Baptist. He, can, he takes that break, but then he comes back in verse 19, and he says, and this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then, are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, this is John the Baptist, I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ or Elijah nor prophet? John answered. Then now remember earlier, John the Apostle said he came in the spirit of Elijah. John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one whom you do not know, even one who comes after me, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. These took, things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Again, John the Apostle spends more time giving us the account of John the Baptist. And why does he do that? The question is why. So here's this guy, camel's hair, leather belt, eating, you know, bugs and honey. It's just an astounding image that we get. John the Apostle does this because John the Baptist enlightens us more. He said, I'm not Elijah, one of the Old Testament prophets. He was before me, Jesus was, even though he was born physically after me. So again... The power of John the Apostle writing here is about to be revealed in one big event. In verse 29, he says this, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Verse 30. It's a powerful statement. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. John the Baptist. This is John telling what John the Baptist is about to do or saw. I saw the Spirit coming down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I would have not known him except the one who sent me to baptize with water told me the man <clears throat> whom you see the Spirit come down and remain on is the one who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, I have seen and I have testified that this is the Son of God. Enlightenment number seven. Jesus is the Lamb of God. Jesus is the Lamb. Now, I want us to consider this statement. This is the last point today. 
This statement is a powerful representation for the Jews because they understood the message of a lamb. The lamb meant a lot. The statement that Jesus is the lamb of God is found in the New Testament 31 times, 29 of which are in John's writing. John the Apostle uses the terminology, the Lamb of God, to connect a Jewish culture and the rest of the world because they knew what the Lamb represented to the Jews, the sacrifice. He wrote it in such a way to where they would grab it. Why is this important? Because the spotless Lamb represented a covering, right, for sin. The Lamb meant something to the people. God shed the first blood, he killed the first animals and took their skins. God is the ultimate fashion designer. He made the first clothes for people. And he covered their nakedness. He covered them. The, the priest was basically on the day of atonement. He was a butcher. He was covered from head to toe with blood. The blood of the sacrifices. And this lamb, this little lamb was helpless. It was spotless. The lamb was not responsible for whatever you had done. The lamb was innocent. The lamb was simply a, a creature and the lamb was young. The lamb still had life. The lamb still had a lot to look forward to. The lamb was wrongfully displayed in the place of your guilt. The, the lamb was perfect. The lamb was innocent and pure. The lamb was cute. It was a creature you wanted to protect because it seemed so weak and helpless. The lamb was vulnerable. You've seen that thing on social media with the lambs running around with pajamas on. I mean, they're so cute, right? Who would want to harm such a little thing? And yet the old covenant requires the sacrifice or the shedding of blood for this weak, simple, pure lamb. This, if you will, this sacrifice to be offered. The blood was representing how a loving father had killed these first ones to clothe Adam and Eve's nakedness. And it, it was God's grace that covered them, but it was never enough to remove their guilt. As Hebrews says, they could sacrifice and they could sacrifice and they could sacrifice, but the person still bore the measure of their guilt. Under the old covenant, there was no reprieve. There was no continuing to suffer from the responsibility of your sin. There was no release of your burden of, of guilt because you had hurt someone or you had done something wrong or you had stolen or you had done some horrible thing or you said the thing you shouldn't or you pushed sin when you know you shouldn't have. These people had done things and they all these things had happened and they bore the repercussion in their life for their addictions and, and the way that their thinking was and, and they, they were constantly being drowned with their guilt guilt and they would come every year and they would bring these blood sacrifices just and the bible says and the writer of hebrews in 9 and 10 says this in no way was able to take away the guilt of the worshiper they still had the guilt they they were just offering this in hope that they were following the pattern of the the righteous requirements of the blood sacrifice of the lamb it was it wasn't that it was it was god's grace more that covered them and, and they just accepted that as a fact. There was no other thing that they had beyond that. It was never enough to remove their guilt. It was never enough to remove their shame. It was never enough to take the burden of their responsibility. And it was the Christ. John puts, Jesus of Nazareth, Yeshua, that John calls out and he says, Behold the Lamb. God. 
who takes away the sin of the good ones, the world. Not just the good people. You don't mean the mean people. Uncle Fred, my boss, my obnoxious brother-in-law, my spouse. Don't elbow him. I saw that. Not just those that we like, but everyone. Surely you don't mean those people on TV that say they hate Christians or they hate people because of the color of their skin. Surely you don't mean the lamb who takes away the sins of the whole world. You don't mean wicked people. Friends, today people are drowning in anger. They're drowning in fear. They're drowning in this despair and hopelessness. The lamb of God came and he died for them. People are suffering pain and the pressure of their guilt, just like they were under the Old Covenant. The difference, John expounds in 1 John 1, chapter 2, verse 2, he says this, He is the propitiation for our sins. The propitiation, atoning sacrifice, or the interruption, the one who became your substitute. And for, and not, he says, for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. I am grateful for that. The altar is where the lamb was slain. The altar is where it came to be. The altar is where the blood was shed. The altar is where the sacrifice was made. That altar was Gethsemane. The sword was the cross. Jesus shedding his blood as the spotless, perfect lamb. And so when we look at him, as Isaiah 53 says, we read earlier for prayer time, the world doesn't look at him and say, oh, what a beautiful thing. Someone beaten, bruised, and bloodied isn't beautiful. But as Charles Wesley wrote in that old hymn, Oh, that I might kiss his bleeding feet. In other words, the beautiful shed blood of the Lamb of God. Our redemption, our salvation, our hope in the Lamb is still found at that altar. In fact, Hebrews tells us that our salvation because of the blood of Christ relieves us from the guilt of your sin yesterday. Many Christians, I think, wander around and we continue to live with our sin instead of coming to the cross. The Bible says something that the Old Testament people didn't have. Hebrews tells us that the blood of Christ cleanses the conscience now of the believer by the power of the Holy Spirit. Friends, that's the reason that we as believers, when we come to the Lord, that's the altar. I'm going to ask our musicians to come. You know, the introduction that John the Apostle makes in the very end here, is directing them to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit 
I think we have minimized in church world today. The idea of being at an altar where the sacrifice for sins was made, our altar means we are coming to the shed blood of the Lamb of God who takes away all our sins. We are coming to the place. And, and, and friends, this is what we do. We, we have a McDonald's prayer mentality when it comes to this altar and being filled with the Spirit. The idea more is that Jesus, we would meet with Him. That the Holy Spirit would meet with us. So,